3rd John. Actually, look at 2nd John before you go to 3rd John. <laughs> when I mention 2nd John. Way in the back of your Bible. Right before Revelation. Let me pray. <coughs> Father, we're looking at a difficult subject today, so we just ask for your blessing and uh, understanding and grace as we talk about church and church life and leadership and what you want to see in us. In Christ's name, amen. So, we're going to start our study in thirst. Third John by looking at Second John. That, that's what I meant to say. Okay. So last week in the letter uh, um, that we call Second John, we discussed the first century church and they were dealing with what to do about these traveling teachers and evangelists who, uh, or prophets as they would call themselves, who arrived at local churches seeking aid like lodging and a meal and things like that. And they are happy to teach or share a message with the local congregation. And the main message of 2 John is be discerning about traveling preachers. That was the main idea there. If you don't know somebody and they show up without a clear, strong recommendation from somebody you do know, then be very careful. Why? Because of verse 7 of 2 John. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. So last week we talked about that. False teachers claiming to be Christians but denying the truth about Jesus and the gospel. They can do serious damage to God's work and especially to tender souls. They can lead them astray. And we don't want that to happen or have that ever happen. So anybody welcomed into a church as a teacher needs to be solid in their doctrine. And you have to know that about them. In fact, verse 9 says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Then verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. So 2 John's a very important little letter um, for every Christian to understand as well as every ministry to understand and that's why it's in the Bible here. We stand in the truth and the truth is what God has revealed in the scriptures and if anybody goes beyond that in what they're saying that's not a good thing. People like to add to scripture and or twist it and we can't do that. To move away to move away from the scriptures is to reject or turn one's back on everything God has done and is now doing for the redemption of sinners and we can't have that. Now, that's 2nd John. 3rd John is the shortest book in the New Testament and it's sort of dealing with the opposite problem. So 2nd John's problem was letting people in that shouldn't be in to teach or present their stuff. 3rd John is about a guy who will have nothing to do with men who are coming through with um, that are doing the Lord's work who are strong and solid in the faith and biblical men sent out from solid churches and they stop for lodging and a meal and this man says you can't stay here we're not going to help you. You know travel in the Roman world was a little different than today. Um, it was dangerous 
It was expensive too for the time and the gospel was spreading rapidly which meant that good men were being sent out by churches all the time to take the gospel of Jesus um, to homes and communities all throughout Asia Minor is where John was but all throughout the Roman Empire and, um, and beyond that too. So to keep the work going there was created um, I would call it an, an informal an informal system of care for these traveling church planters and evangelists. So um, established churches would provide short-term safe lodging for them and sufficient food to kind of keep them moving on to the next location that they were going to. So while Second John focuses on deceivers and charlatans who take advantage of that informal system to work their way into the church, Third John is focused on those who have no interest in helping anybody do the Lord's work because they got their own thing going. So John writes this letter, 3 John, to, to help clear up a particularly ugly situation in one particular place in one of the churches he has known for years and the problem in that church is, is sort of twofold. Um, one is that they've dropped out of this system of hospitality to missionaries and messengers from other churches. But much worse than that is what's behind it. And what's behind it is this man. This man in the church who decided that he's the king of the church. Not literally the king, but he's the protos, the first man of the church. And he doesn't want any attention going to anybody else. So he's created his own little fiefdom, his own spiritual fiefdom, and he's lording it over the flock. The man's name is Diotrephes. So remember that name, Diotrephes. It's a great Greek name. He's everything a shepherd of the flock should not be. And that's why he's in the Bible too, to help us, to warn us about people like that. So um, we need to know that church leaders can be full of themselves and they can build a wall of protection around themselves to prevent being held accountable to other leaders and the people of the church. And you need to look out for people like that. You need to be very aware. Sometimes they're very gifted and very talented. They are great speakers. They have all kinds of um, personality qualities certain people are attracted to and yet they are not qualified to be in leadership because of their arrogance and their lack of accountability that they actually labor to not have accountability to anybody else. So they're all about themselves. That's the idea. So when we see this today, and, and I'm talking about today in our time, it's very common. It's too common, much too common. But just know that when, if you ever run into a situation like that or have friends that go to a church like that, um, the apostles had to deal with the exact same thing in the first century. It wasn't not true then. It's, it's human nature for people to rise up like this within churches and it's got to be dealt with. So the immediate issue is refusing to help um, godly men who are traveling and doing their thing. That's the immediate issue. But the primary issue is that men like Diotrephes can become dominant in the church. And that cannot be permitted. So churches do have dictators. They can be pastors. They can be elders. They can be, they can be laymen that have a lot of clout and usually a large family behind them to cause all kinds of dissension and trouble and insist upon their own way about everything. So powerful personalities. Um, such people can be 
again, very intelligent. They can be quite gifted or they can be boorish and dumb, but they can, be, they can have a lot of good qualities. And the good qualities are what kind of fool people. So, oh, well, this guy's so sharp. He knows the Bible so well. But that's not all that matters. There's a humility and a grace that's supposed to be in leaders. That's what we were reading earlier in 1 Peter chapter 5. There's got to be these other qualities as well. So you can be very knowledgeable in the scriptures and be a complete jerk, just to, just to use technical biblical language there. <laughs> we'll come back to that in a bit. So let me, let me first share how John kind of approaches this letter. So he talks about three men. One's name is Gaius, one's named Diotrephes, and one is named Demetrius. Demetrius is played by Victor Mature. <laughs> Some of you have seen the robe, I can tell. So, Gaius is the man John is writing to, Diotrephes is this church dictator, and Demetrius is sort of the model Christian. He's probably the guy carrying the letter to, the, to, to Gaius. So, Diotrephes and the letter sits between Gaius and Demetrius. So, it's Gaius, Demetrius, um, I mean, Gaius, Diotrephes, and Demetrius, and Demetrius is the last guy. He's kind of a good example. So we can learn from Gaius and Demetrius. We can emulate them. We can pattern ourselves after them. We can want to be like them. But Diotrephes is like a flashing sign that says, beware, warning, warning. Will Robinson, warning. That, there, I'm dating myself. But um, look out. So we have to be discerning about men like Diotrephes. Now, so one of the interesting questions just about the letter itself is kind of understanding the relationship between Gaius and Diotrephes because John is writing to Gaius, okay? Classic Roman name there. There's got to be a reason he wants to talk about Diotrephes with Gaius, but we don't know that. We don't know the exact situation or their relationship with each other. I don't think Gaius is in the same church as Diotrephes because Diotrephes has taken over the church and we'll find out he's kicked people out that disagree with him. So clearly there's a backstory and we don't know all the details, but this Diotrephes guy has been a problem for a while. So John is writing a letter with regard to him, but he's writing it to Gaius. So my guess is that Gaius is a godly leader, maybe in a nearby church or a church plant, another Christian community that's close to that church. That's what I'm thinking in proximity to this fellowship that was taken over by Diotrephes. Churches were spread all over certain areas and every community had one just like here in America. And uh, in certain places that were well evangelized. So it could be just right down the road basically. Another small church or one meeting in a home or something like that. So um, Gaius obviously knows the situation at least a little bit. Because John talks to him like he does. And that would fit because John it also talks about visiting Gaius. And, he's, and he says um, uh, he's hoping to come and see him. But he also says I'm going to take care of this Diotrephes situation when I get there. So they've got to be close by. I'm thinking. So let's talk about the kind of man Gaius is. He's really a model. So before we get to the bad character, let's talk about the good character. Verse 1, um, John introduces himself. He calls himself the elder. And he says he loves Gaius in truth. So that means if we think about 2 John and how he uses the idea of walking in the truth, that means uh, the, the gospel, the truth about Jesus. So we talked a lot about John's use of the word truth in 2 John. When he says truth, he means all that we know and all that we treasure about the Lord Jesus as it's revealed in the scripture and what Christ has done for us. So Gaius loves Jesus. So John loves Gaius as a true brother 
in Christ, in the truth, is the way he puts it. So, verse 2, we have this greeting. Oh, 3 John, verse 2. I have to talk about it. <laughs> it's just a greeting, but I have to talk about it. So, um, I'll probably never preach on first, Second John or Third John again in my life, so I've got to talk about this, this right now. So, this is what he says. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now that seems really simple. It's a wonderful thought, a prayer, a greeting for a brother in Christ. You know, you're such a godly man. I hope that your health and your life situation is as prosperous as your soul. It's kind of a sweet greeting, pretty typical of a, it's actually very similar to just about every letter that we have from antiquity from one Roman person to another Roman person. When Roman people wrote, they always inquired about somebody's health and wished them well. That's what he's doing, right? Now maybe Gaius had been ill or this is just general, he hopes and prays that Gaius' health and life situation prospers as much as his soul prospers. That, it's a way to compliment his soul and to wish good well-being for him. So, being impressed with his soul, that's the Christian element that differs this from a typical Roman greeting because he's focused on his soul, which most Romans wouldn't be writing about that. But do you notice a word in here? The word prospers. You know what the prosperity gospel is? We've talked about it before. Prosperity preachers will tell you that Jesus didn't only die for your sins, he died for your wallet. <laughs> he also died for your health, for your bodily systems. He died for your kidney stones. <laughs> that keeps coming up in my mind. <laughs> so, because that's true, you can sow seed money to the preacher, the prosperity preacher, because he or she has an inside track with God. And when you send them money, your financial situation will get much better. And if you're sick or have some kind of injury or something, it'll, it'll be healed because they've got the, the connection there. So, is that true? Now, since prosperity theology is not taught anywhere in the New Testament, they have to have a verse. This is the verse. Because it uses the word prosper. So, the prosperity preacher, because he needs a new private jet, will quote 3 John 2 as a proof text that God wants you to prosper. Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. See, he prays for Gaius to prosper in addition to his soul prospering. Health and wealth. It's all right here. No. I mean, that is there, but it's just a greeting. <laughs> He's just wishing him well. It's a pretty typical greeting with a little lovely Christian emphasis added on to a typical Roman greeting of health. It's a prayer that, that Gaius is doing well. That's all it is. John knows the quality of his soul and he prays that, you know, your soul is so full and so wonderful and full. full of, I pray the rest of your life would be full in a wonderful way. It's just a greeting in a letter. That's all it is. Maybe he had health problems. Maybe he had kidney stones. I don't know. But virtually all Roman letters include a wish or a prayer for good health. That's just how they're written. 
In fact, we've got a bunch of them. Archaeologists are uncovering them all the time, usually in the eastern countries because they're much drier there and parchment lasts longer there. But there's a famous second century letter from a Roman soldier in Alexandria just writing home. And he says, first of all, I hope that you are in good health and that all things are going well for you and my sister and her daughter and my brother. That's just a that's the way people write. People still write that way. I hope all is well with you, right? That's, that's just the normal thing. In fact, it was so common to do that, that Roman writers, typical people just back and forth, normal people writing letters to each other, would just write S-V-B-E-E-V at the beginning of their letter. And everybody knew what it meant. It's Latin. Si valis bene est, ego valeo. If you are well, Bene est, it is good. I am well. So instead of writing all of that, they would just write those six letters and everybody knew what that meant. So that's, that's, the, that's the greeting idea. So a greeting is not an apostolic promise of wealth and health and all of that kind of stuff. It, it's not, it doesn't even read that way. And John doesn't ask for any money either. It's just, it's just a greeting. So don't let preachers twist the scriptures to manipulate you to get money out of you promising all kinds of things that the Bible doesn't promise to you. Now, let's look at what John heard from his team about Gaius. So he's heard about Gaius. So why is he so impressed with his soul, with this brother? This will tell you how Gaius' soul prospered. This is what's good about him. Verse 3 now. Let's move on. For, what, for I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in the truth. I'm really glad he said the last part because in our culture, when you say your truth, you mean whatever you believe. And that's not what he's saying. Oh, you know, Gaius, I really love you because you, you, you're so committed to your truth. Like he's got his own Jesus, his own truth, his own religion or whatever. That's not what he's saying. And he defines it. You're walking in the truth. When he says your truth, he says your walk in the truth. The truth. That's what he's talking about. So notice now, what did John hear? He says, I was very glad when they came and talked about you walking in the truth. So you know what makes a Christ-centered person happy? You know what makes them glad? When they hear about another person walking in the truth. And do you know what makes a Christ-centered person sad? Down to hear that somebody's not walking in the truth. That's, that's a godly person looks at the world that way. If somebody's not walking in the truth, they're sad. If they are walking in the truth, they're glad. Not walking in the truth brings sadness. It brings grief. Walking in the truth, that's a phrase we saw in 2 John quite a bit. It speaks of consistency and the daily walk with Jesus. That's why they use the word walking. I'm with Jesus all the time. I'm faithful to Jesus every day. I walk with him. That's what they're talking about. The step-by-step relationship with Christ Gaius lived that and people saw that consistency and came back and told John about that so he's happy so seeing a man like that is John's greatest joy a man walking in the truth I think I I think I'm telling you the truth if I say that's my greatest joy too when I know that somebody's walking in the truth it's an an incredibly joyful and happy thing verse 4 I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Children, of course, is how John, see it in 1 John all over the place, 
how he describes people that he has either led to Christ or people that are under his ministry that he's shepherding, that he's responsible for, his pastoral care is over them. And when he hears that they're walking in the truth, he has no greater joy than that. There is no greater joy than that, than a consistent walk of somebody who loves Jesus and follows Jesus in all things. That's a source of great joy. It's not joyful to see people limping after Jesus because they have one foot in the world. That's not joyful. But a consistent walk is joyful. It's not joyful to see a person crawling after Jesus because they got two feet in the world. That's not joyful either. That's a situation that brings great sadness instead of joy. Because they're wasting their gifts and they're not walking well and Christ is not honored by what they're doing. So that brings sadness. But a man walking in the truth, that's a smile maker. That's a sweet thing. That's a wonderful thing. So it's not that the limping guy with one foot in the world is loved any less. Um, it's just sad that this person can't find their spiritual stride and you're hoping for them and wishing for them and praying for them and wanting them to, to succeed and walk a good Christian walk but they're not so a shepherd sees a person not walking in the truth and they don't feel joy they feel a battle they feel um, like grieved over that it's exhausting intensive concern is what it is and love moves one Christian a godly Christian to see a Christian that's limping because they've got one foot in the world not walking with Christ it, it causes them to want to pray for that person and how to minister to that person. And it's a sad thing. And you're always thinking, how can I guide this brother better? How can I, what can I say to them to help them do better? How can I minister to them? How can I love them? How can I get him on the narrow path instead of striding the, the narrow path and the wide path? Because you can't do that very long. You're gonna fi fall one way or the other way. It's not a joyful process working through that. It's a heartache process. It's worthwhile. It, and love causes us to walk with that person and help that person, but it's a heartache. Just like when you have a child and as they grow up they make really bad choices, that's a heartache. It's not, you can't joy in that. It's, it's a heartache. It's the same thing spiritually, exactly the same thing. Same feeling. It's not fun. There's a kind of a sadness. And in ministry there's always kind of a sadness because there's always some people that aren't walking well. So that's just true. And I think that's why the book of Hebrews talks about, you know where it says obey church leaders, Hebrews 13, 17, because it brings them joy. That's a really interesting take on a member's duty to the church is to bring joy to your leaders by being obedient to Christ. But you know that passage? It says obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Leaders have to give an account for the sheep and how they're doing. He says, let them do this with joy and not with grief for that would be unprofitable for you. So it's better for everyone if we're all committed to walking in the truth consistently. That's a joy spreading thing to do. But it causes a lot of grief otherwise and that grief weighs down um, the whole church really. So let's see what John says about Gaius because he is walking in the truth. Verse 5, beloved you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren and especially when they are strangers and when they have testified to your love before the church. So Gaius serves the saints faithfully. He loves to do that. He loves people, especially on this issue of hospitality to strangers. That's kind of the, the issue he's talking about right now. So Gaius 
walks in the truth. He loves the brethren. We saw in 2 John, 2 John we talked about love and truth. How they go together. That was a big theme in 2 John. So Gaius walking in the truth is manifesting itself in love, he says, toward people he may never even have met before because he's so into serving the Lord. So even if he's not met you and he knows you're doing the Lord's work, he loves you. He's got you in. He's going to feed you. He's going to give you a nice place to stay. He's going to send you out with some, some extra goodies, some um, but zucchini bread or something like that. With a, in our house, it would be zucchini bread. But um, the much-loved thing. So Gaius is a great example here. He's, he's a wonderful man. He's walking in the truth, manifested in love. So those who had been provided lodging by Gaius have told their church when they got home what a wonderful host he is. A fine man. And then the last line of verse 6 commends future traveling missionaries or Christian workers into Gaius's care. And then verse 7 tells us who these folks are that Gaius is so willing to serve. So we're talking about people in ministry that are being supported. So look at verse 6 sort of in the middle there. He says, you will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out, talking about these traveling church planting evangelist teacher types. They went out for the sake of the name accepting nothing from the Gentiles. So they go out for the sake of the name. That's the name of Jesus. They are serving the cause of Christ and his work by getting the word out, by discipling other people, by planting churches, by building up churches. They're doing all this stuff for Jesus. And as they bring Jesus to the pagans, they, like Paul, don't in any way want to bring money into the issue. So they don't charge unbelievers money to teach them or work with them or pray with them, but they've got to make a living somehow. They've got to eat, right? So other people support them exactly like missionaries today. We support them so they can go someplace for free regarding the other people and serve them and bring the gospel to them. You know, so you're not asking for money. Because you know, ancient philosophers used to wander all around and ask for money for, to give you counsel. The Christian missionaries wouldn't do that. They would never ask for money from people. So they need support, exactly like we support missionaries. So now we come, in verse 8, to the ought. Ought. What ought you to do, right? This is what godly people ought to do. It's really simple, but it's kind of a profound sentence. Therefore, verse 8, we ought to support such men so that they may be fellow workers with the truth. So by supporting the ministry of the gospel, whether it's church planting or missions or some really good work going on somewhere of some kind, when you support that financially, you become a fellow worker with the truth. That's the word here, sunergoi. Sun is like with and ergo, like ergonomics, right? Is work. So you become a fellow worker with those people when you support them. That's the idea. So when we support them, God sees us as fellow workers in their labor. That's not a small thing for God to see you as a fellow worker in, the, in some other labor that's going on. So like Alan Tayebwa, when he was here, he's planning a church in a certain area of Uganda. And as we support him, as you support him in prayer and financially and things like that, God looks at you as a fellow worker of that very thing that's going on. Not everybody's called to be a missionary or is sent on the mission field. Some people are captains of industry or all kinds of things. Well, that captain of industry can build a great 
industry empire. If he's a believer, if he takes resources from that and uses it for gospel work, he's a fellow worker. There were a couple of brothers that owned one of the early big oil industries. I think it was Standard Oil or one of the big, I can't remember, it's out of my head right now. But they funded so much gospel ministry in the early part of the 20th century. Outstanding men who just used all of this wealth from oil, early oil money, to fund churches, Sunday schools, missions. In fact, when the church was in a battle with modernism and liberal theology, which was denying all the truth, they funded the, the work called, this book called The Fundamentals in the early 20th century where we get the word fundamentalism from that book. And it was just scholars arguing for all the great doctrines of the faith. And they paid to have that sent to every pastor and Sunday school teacher in America for free. Because they were so committed to the truth. So they used all their resources. They were fellow workers in all kinds of things. And those guys um, were honoring God. So um, we want to be fellow workers. Gaius was a, such a fellow worker. He was a true fellow worker, but not Diotrephes. Not Diotrephes. Diotrephes is not a fellow worker. He's not known for his love of the brethren or the lost. People who know Gaius talk about his love for the truth and for those laboring in the truth, but they don't talk about Diotrephes for his love. That's not, it's not that Diotrephes doesn't have any love. He does have a love. In fact, John mentions it in verse 9. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Did you catch what he loves? He loves to be first. That's what he loves. Gaius loves people. Diotrephes loves his position. That's what he cares about. He loves to be first. There's a long Greek word there, philo protuon, protos, first, philo, love. He loves to be first. It's one big word. It's kind of interesting. He loves to be the king of the church. He doesn't have a servant's heart. He doesn't have humility. And one person he doesn't love is the apostle John. A chosen apostle of Jesus. He doesn't love him. A man granted authority by Jesus over the church, over all the churches. Diotrephes shuns John, won't even acknowledge him because he wants to be first. And as an apostle, John is actually first. In terms of authority in the church, an apostle is as high as you can get. You have 12 apostles and Paul. That's as high as you can get. Apostolic authority was over every preacher, every teacher, every prophet even. 1 Corinthians says that even prophets are under apostles. But when Diotrephes gets a letter from John, from an apostle, he ignores it. In fact, he does more than ignore it. He slams him. That's how you maintain your first position. You bring down the other people. Verse 10. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds and what he does unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfied with this he himself does not receive the brethren either and he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church so you send a messenger to Diotrephes with a letter or some information or check out the thing and he, he kicks them out and the people that are going to welcome them because they're from an apostle he kicks them out so he's got a tight reign 
on some little church somewhere. And he uses his usurped authority to control every decision that's made in that church. So there were people in his church who wanted to be fellow workers, who were committed to that idea, who wanted to serve, doing the work, taking the gospel to the world. And there were men like Gaius in his congregation and he kicks them out. He kicks them out. Now in every age, there are diatrophies, types in churches. That's not new. We seem to have more than our share in the modern age. And there's a lot of reasons for that, I think, in terms of culture. But it's actually pretty shocking. Scandal after scandal of big name preachers exposed as really nasty human beings and selfish. And some of the biggest, if you went back one dozen years ago, just a dozen years ago, some of the biggest names in evangelical Christianity turned out to be diatrophies, characters. And you just didn't know it because their fame was based on external stuff. Maybe they're on the radio and they're super famous. They hold giant conferences, all kinds of enormous influence. Their churches are gigantic, mega churches and highly successful authors, radio personalities, men who created huge conferences that influenced thousands and thousands of pastors. They're evangelical darlings, truly, with huge influence. But behind the scenes, controlling, angry, bullying, nasty, corrupt, uh, on and on and on. Each one created a church structure that allowed for no accountability. They actually invented church structures where the elders were, you had elders over the elders. And the elders over the elders were super loyal cadre of the pastor. So if elders had any kind of an issue or a problem pointing out something that was wrong, the elders over the elders would either correct them, put them down, or kick them out. And then the pastor could act any way he wanted to and do anything he wanted to. He could be as abusive as he could possibly be. I'm going to mention three names. And I'm not picking on these people. They deserve to be picked on. But that's not my purpose. It's, it's that these are well-documented um, cases. The, all the evidence is out now. Everybody knows everything. It's been all spread out. But I'm going to mention just three names from, from a dozen years ago. These would have been heroes of the faith and to different people. So in the, in the evangelical world. Each one created a church structure, again, that allowed no accountability. And that's the biggest issue here. They had elder boards to protect them. Or elder, to protect the brand is probably even a better way to say it. And you see that all the time. Two of them were buddies. One was James McDonald from Harvest Church in the Midwest. And the other one, another, his buddy was Mark Driscoll who had a Mars Hill Church up in Seattle. Gigantic churches. I think Mars Hill had at least five campuses, multi-campuses. James McDonald's church had 26,000 people in attendance. That's a big church in terms of their church and their little satellite churches. They built huge empires. Both of them had a pretty similar public profile, very combative, um, you know, nitty gritty, tough kind of uh, preaching, you know, in your face, uncompromising. And then they both had ministries that completely imploded due to enormous character flaws. Horrible character flaws. Narcissistic traits, if you want to use a psychological word. So McDonald's elders, James McDonald's elders, finally couldn't ignore all the behind the scenes behavior that was becoming public, especially when somebody recorded it. 
and somebody in their church had a radio show in their community and played what he behaved like behind the scenes on air, that pretty much finished it. So he was fired for, quote, a sinful pattern of inappropriate language, anger, and domineering behavior, insulting, belittling, and verbally bullying others, extravagant spending, utilizing church resources for personal gain. And that's putting it nicely, <laughs> what was going on. I mean, the guy was totally off the rails. Mark Driscoll, similarly, was found after so much came out and his elders couldn't back it up anymore, Quote, arrogance, a quick temper, harsh speech, leading the staff and elders in a domineering manner. And so Mars Hill invited Paul Tripp, who's a kind of a troubleshooter in the evangelical world to help churches, to come and examine their church and help them through this crisis and going all through with, with Driscoll and all this stuff. And he wrote a letter to their elders after he was there. And he said, quote, this is without a doubt the most abusive, coercive ministry culture I've ever been involved with. You can't have a church culture where you essentially have a very tight circle and everyone else is your enemy. Can you imagine church being run that way? That's not how we're supposed to do church. <laughs> and I think Mark Driscoll kind of explained it before the implosion in a sermon. He was pretty outgoing about himself in his sermons. 2006, he said this in a sermon. I'm a guy who's highly competitive. Every year, I want the church to grow. I want my knowledge to grow. I want my influence to grow. I want our staff to grow. I want our church plants to grow. I want everything because I want to win. And so for me, it is success and drivenness and it's productivity and it is victory that drives me constantly. My own little, that's my own little idol. And it works well in church because no one would ever yell at you for being a Christian who produces results. So I found a perfect place to hide. Now that's not a humble thing he was saying. He's actually describing himself. He goes on. And I was thinking about it this week. I'm still quoting him. What if church, what if the church stopped growing? What if it shrunk? What if everything fell apart? What if half the staff left? Would I still worship Jesus or would I be a total despairing mess? I don't know. <laughs> By God's grace, I won't have to find out. But you never know. Well, it imploded and he found out. So he went and planted a church in Arizona after his elders fired him in disgrace. And he would not even apologize to all the people he hurt. So now he's got another big church. He's doing it again. Anybody who says their commitment to worship Jesus depends on winning an imaginary competition between churches is not qualified to be a leader in the church of Christ. They're not mature enough. In fact, that's narcissistic to the extreme. He should have been fired after that sermon, but people probably thought he was brave and cool. So it took a few more years. Diotrephes could have said, I want my influence to grow. I want our staff to grow. I want our church plans to grow. I want everything because I want to win. He could have said that easily. So Driscoll really saw the church world as a competition for personal importance. That's the opposite of Paul. It's the opposite of Peter. It's the opposite of John. It's the opposite of everything Jesus said about leadership. Now on the flip side of that, can I still say flip side? Do people know what that means? <laughs> they had these little black CDs and you'd flip them over. <laughs> anyway. 45s. Yes, a 45. That's right. <laughs> I had a couple of Beatles 45s. I would flip. Anyway. 
So there's one more person, Bill Hybels, completely different than Mark Driscoll and um, James McDonald. Very different kind of man, different style. In terms, of, in terms of influence on the modern church, way beyond those guys. This guy had so much influence on modern evangelicalism. He created the seeker-sensitive church model, which he taught to thousands of pastors all over America in little struggling churches. How are we going to ever grow? And he told them how to do it. And um, doctrine was minimized. Um, he had thousands of people at Willow Creek Church, many, many thousands, tens of thousands. He fed sermons to them based on their felt needs, not what the Bible was saying. He, it would have Bible content, but it wasn't systematically biblical stuff. It was, how to, what would appeal to you? What would you like to hear about? That kind of thing. That was his approach, and that he spread that idea all over the place. So the church featured a lot of entertainment, Services were super professional, professionally run, carefully crafted worship experiences down to the very minute, like 30 seconds here, this and that's going to happen there. And you see the Willow Creek in, in, influence everywhere in modern church, churchianity. <laughs> but his public persona was completely different than the other two guys, completely. He was more like business, casual, solid, normal person, uh, middle class, respectable guy. Uh, he had a way of presenting himself that seemed competent to the businessman. It's that kind of world. And it was kind of a business model he used to create church. He also had a way of putting himself first by hitting on all the ladies on the staff. And that went on for decades. And if they complained to anybody, they actually had an HR department, human resources, because the church was so big. If the women went there, then they were shamed, called liars, and kicked out of the church. And that happened over and over again. And his elders... Did, job was to um, put those people out of the church. Heartbreaking stories. If you listen to the women tell their stories, it's absolutely heartbreaking. So you've got three super successful ministries, each with a big impact on the church in America. And they all imploded due to human pride, craving the wrong things, and a lack of accountability. And I'm only bringing those guys up because they're really good examples of diatrophies in the modern world. And there are many more. In fact, Hillsong just collapsed this week because all their financial records got exposed. And how they fleeced the flock was absolutely amazing. The, the central Hillsong church in Australia. Just incredible stuff. So these guys are, are modern day diatrophies who run everything, who want everything for them, who have their own empires to build. And they put themselves first. One found pleasure in humiliating other people. Another one found pleasure in humiliating other people, but also had to be a winner. And this one guy couldn't control his lusts at all. So everything served him. And I mention them because they're well-known, well-documented, heavily reported, and thoroughly analyzed. Everybody's been analyzing these, each of these situations. And I mention them because you got to know that a diatrophies in the church is a very real possibility. It's a very real thing. And it's very common. And these are gifted people. And they preach the gospel. And I guess we can rejoice that they preach the gospel, but they left a lot of victims when their churches collapsed. A lot of disillusioned people. So you can't do that. So John's faced with a man like that and he needs to protect the church. And it can't be allowed to go on. So that's why John says he's coming. Verse 10, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does. So John loves the church and God's people too much to let a narcissist run the church. Even one local congregation somewhere. 
And for him, this incident is a warning for us. Verse 11, beloved, this is so simple, but it's violated all the time. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but imitate what is good. Doesn't matter how gifted somebody is, don't imitate them or hold them up as great leaders. If they're evil, if they can't love, so we have to always be on guard and never elevate anybody, anybody to a place of no accountability. And unfortunately, in very large corporate level kind of churches with brand to protect, it gets very withdrawn inside and no accountability is permitted to the top guy. So, John says, as is his very simple way, the one who does good is of God. We're in verse 11 still. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. He just kind of leaves it there. And that's all he has to say about it for this time. He says, I'm going to come and talk to you in person. But evildoers, he says, have not seen God. They've used God. They haven't seen him. And he ends on a bright note. And that's Demetrius. We'll just wrap it up with this in just a second or two. Demetrius is probably the guy carrying John's letter to Gaius. Now, Demetrius is a man worth imitating. Verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. And we add our testimony and you know that our testimony is true. So he's given this great com commendation to Demetrius. He's commended by everybody who knows him. It's evident in his life that he walks in the truth. And John says, I can add my own recommendation as well because I know him. So here's the takeaway. We don't want to get caught up with narcissists and charlatans running the church of Jesus Christ anywhere. So we need to know they exist and we need to have discernment and look out for them. Don't get cynical. Turn away from them. Deal with them. All over the world, there are tens of thousands, tens of thousands of faithful shepherds shepherding churches with humility and grace. Are they perfect? No, nobody's perfect. But just be mature in your thinking. Follow people you know who are well attested by people you, you know that have proven character. And it is certain you won't find perfection in human beings this side of heaven. But you will find people who actually do see themselves as servants of Christ. And that's what you want to have. That's what you want to follow. People who love the Lord first, other people second, and themselves last. That's it. Let me just end with a quote from Jesus Christ. The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you shall become like the youngest. And the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. Follow people like that. Be people like that. Let's pray. Our great king, help us to walk in the truth. And help us to have wisdom and discernment. May we live for Christ and not for ourselves. We ask this in his glorious name. Amen.